This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. In the untouched regions of the forest, the kōkako runs through the treetops feeding on leaves, flowers and fruit. The South Island kōkako, with its distinctive orange wattles at the base of the bill, hasn't been sighted in many years and may be extinct. A situation the blue wattled bird of the North Island may find itself in unless its habitat is preserved. Its delightful call includes a variety of rich organ and bell-like notes. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or chaos, made possible by support from the Peace and Disarmament Education Trust. Welcome friends to Community or Chaos. Today we have with us Robert Patman, who is a senior lecturer at the University of Togo in the field of international relations, and Jeffrey Miller, who uh, has lived in Germany and the Middle East and is a political commentator and international analysis at the Democracy Project at Victoria University. Welcome, both of you. We'll be talking about uh, Russia and the Ukrainian crisis. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and going to Community or Chaos. Welcome again to Community or Chaos. And Robert and Jeffrey, thank you very much for agreeing to come on to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Uh, Jeffrey, can you very briefly talk about what the Democracy Project is? Yes, the Democracy Project's a a relatively new venture uh, hosted by Victoria University of Wellington, but we are independent uh, of their day-to-day operations. We're focused on promoting critical thinking, analysis, debate, and engagement on politics and society. And the centerpiece of our output uh, really is our website, democracyproject.nz. And all of our content is available for republication uh, by other outlets. Uh, So we're very much on about producing non-partisan content for, for, for the public good. And many of my pieces, I focus on New Zealand foreign policy issues. Many of my pieces have been uh, republished by the likes of the ODT or uh, New, Ze- New Zealand Herald stuff, News Hub, Radio New Zealand, uh, and, and others have taken my pieces. So there's a real appetite, I think, for analysis and, uh, and commentary on New Zealand foreign policy at the moment. It's a very interesting time, obviously. I think I'll briefly be a devil's advocate for a moment and talk about Russia and the Ukrainian history. Russia and the Ukrainian crisis. Putin is an authoritarian leader who manipulates elections. However, Russia has historical reasons to be distrustful of the West and feel surrounded by NATO. There's nothing geographically between Russia and Central Europe that's a flat plain 
on which Russia has experienced over the centuries, many invading forces from the West. Most recently, Napoleon in the 19th century and by Germany in World War II. Russia lost between 25 and 30 million people during the German invasion of Russia. Gorbachev had reason to believe that he had been given personal assurance by President George Bush that NATO powers would not attempt to fill the vacuum left by the collapse of the Warsaw Pact. Should we consider that Russia may have historical legitimate reasons to want to renegotiate the current strategic status quo surrounding Russia and what can NATO and the European Union and the US offer Putin? Could either, both of you respond to this? I'll let Robert go first on that. Well, uh, thank you, uh, Marvin. Uh, this is certainly the view that Mr. Putin articulates and articulates at great length. Um, I disagree. Uh, yes, Russia has historically been vulnerable to invasion, but going back to the example you cited, the Second World War, where Russia unfortunately lost 27 million people as a result of the Nazi invasion, it's often forgotten it was Stalin that concluded a non-aggression pact with Hitler. And um, that was a disastrous miscalculation. At the same time, he also decimated the ranks of his own military, eliminating a third of the top uh, uh, commanders in the Red Army. So um, Russia has made some miscalculations of its own, or the Soviet Union did. With regard to the current argument about NATO, this is interesting because Mr. Putin has revived this after a relative silence on this issue until about 2013, 2014. NATO expanded, not because of Washington, but because the countries of the region wanted to join NATO. Um, and one of the things that really sensitized them to their, their own security needs, and when we talk about the countries of Eastern Europe, we're talking the likes of Hungary, Poland, Romania, Bulgaria. In fact, 14 countries uh, from Eastern Europe have joined NATO in the post-Cold War era. Why have they done so? Because uh, they have historic memories of Soviet interference during the Cold War. Um, it, it, countries, when they're invaded, such as Hungary was in 56, um, Berlin also suffered Soviet interference in 1953, and then uh, Czechoslovakia in 68, and of course the Soviets did not directly intervene, but indirectly intervened in Poland in 1981. Against that historic backdrop, many of those countries, um, after the Cold War was over, and uncertain about the political direction of, this, of the new Russia, remember uh, forces which were trying to reinstitute the Soviet Union stormed the Russian parliament unsuccessfully in 1993, Given that backdrop, many of these countries were very eager to get the protection of NATO. Uh, so Mr. Putin's argument is that Washington has been driving this. That's not factually true. The countries of Eastern Europe have been driving this. And then his demand is um, that countries like the Ukraine, which had actually showed no interest in joint, well, no substantive interest in joining NATO to about 2014, when Mr. Putin annexed the Crimea, um, that these countries, such as Ukraine, should be denied the opportunity to do so. So what he's actually, his demand is basically 
not confined to the Ukraine, although it's focusing on the Ukraine, and it is as follows, that he wants a veto over the security choices that other sovereign countries make. Now, it should be remembered, and this is an important point, particularly for us in New Zealand. In 1994, Russia granted full international recognition to an independent um, uh, independent Ukraine and recognized its territorial integrity. In, in, re- in return, Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons. So they have already violated that agreement in 2014, and they seem to be having a bit of amnesia about their own commitments with regard to Ukraine. So I do not... The other question is, why is Mr. Putin doing this? Um, we can perhaps explore that in the discussion. But the idea NATO hasn't attacked any countries. It's a democratic organisation. All countries, you have to have certain um, democratic requirements to join. Um, you might say that's questionable in the case of one or two members, like Hungary and Turkey. Fair enough. But uh, there's no record of NATO attacking any particular countries. So I, I think we have to weigh that up. And I think Mr Putin um, is, is basically making a demand uh, which will have, if, if accepted, would be nothing less than accepting that Russia has a sphere of influence in Eastern Europe. Is there anything that can be offered that won't change the situation but would give him a way out? Well, he's created this crisis. Really? Sure, yeah. I think that's, that's obvious. Uh, he's created this crisis. He keeps saying it's wet, the West whipping up hysteria and he's got no intention of invading Ukraine. But why do you place 130,000 troops around someone's border? I mean, that's not normal standard procedure. And it's not hysteria to point to it as being a worrying development. It's a threat to both of his political and diplomatic power, isn't it? Well, yes, but he's... You know, there may be other reasons for why he's done this, which we can explore in the discussion, other than, you know, the claims he's making about NATO threatening Russia. Um, Many countries in Eastern Europe, let's be quite clear about it. If you speak to Lithuanians and you speak to Poles, why are all these countries rallying by in the Ukraine? Because they perceive uh, that the Putin regime, which is repressive, and uh, has muzzled the media, has also many of the opponents of Mr. Putin have ended up in a sorry way. Many regimes, many countries in Eastern Europe um, actually perceive Russia as a threat. And, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Putin, I think, has made this move at this time, amongst other things, because he perceives that the United States is divided after the Trump years, and also that it lacks the will to prevent Russia expanding its reinvigorated military capability in Eastern Europe, particularly after the humiliating exit from Afghanistan. So I think these may be some of the factors that are playing a role here. Jeffrey? Do you have anything to say about this? Uh, yes. Well, I mean, there's the old quote, isn't there, from the Chinese statesman Chow Enlai about the being uh, too early to say what uh, the 
cons about the consequences of the French Revolution were, uh, you know, two hundred years after the fact. And I do think it's true that Vladimir Putin looks at things in a in a different way to we do in the West. We're very much in the West focused on uh, relatively short electoral cycles. Putin has been in the job for for twenty years, and he's thinking about his legacy. You know, he's not planning on going away anytime soon. He's probably a little bored, and you know, he is the bully. Um, you know, he's a, a quite clearly the aggressor here. But you have to deal with the bullies in in the playground. The question is exactly how. Um, with regards to NATO, I think it's absolutely true what Robert said, that all of those countries, the 14 countries that have been added to NATO, did so willingly. You know, They weren't coerced into joining NATO. But NATO also, uh, to an extent, took advantage of Russia's weakness um, following the end of the Cold War. And there wasn't, given Russia's dis disarray, particularly in the 1990s, there wasn't much in the way of pushback from Russia. Uh, at that time, and it is quite extraordinary that you know that you've got quite a number of NATO members right on Russia's doorstep, notably the Baltic states, uh, bordering Russia. You've got NATO uh, NATO members, and uh, you know all those countries, as Robert says, you know willingly join NATO, and you can see why. Now, uh, you'd be very happy to be in NATO if you're in the Baltics because it does give you that security guarantee. Uh, you know if. You know, Russia decided to invade the Baltics, they'd be facing a very different situation than they are now. That's the kind of the whole point with Ukraine not being a member of NATO, therefore doesn't have that same um, security guarantee. And you know, Joe Biden has got, and the US have got no appetite to send any number of, of ground troops to Ukraine. They've stationed 8,500 troops uh, to on standby to be sent to Europe. Uh, there's a smaller number uh, already there in Eastern Europe, but you know there's absolutely no question that you know the US and NATO will send any large number of ground forces to Ukraine. Uh, so you know the US is and NATO is really th threatening uh, heavy sanctions because that's all they really can uh, threaten uh, Russia with if they're not going to send troops themselves. Uh, so, you know, it is a, you know, it's a difficult uh, situation. Um, there's no doubt about that. You know, Russia sees the world in a very different way to the way that the West does. And it does see things in terms of spheres of influence, which, you know, it's a, an old term for us, the idea of a, a, you know, a country having sway over its neighbours uh, seems wrong, you know, from uh, perhaps our modern Western perspective, but it's the way that Vladimir Putin sees the world, whether we like it or not. And we have to kind of take the world as it is, I think, and we're going to have to find a way out of this uh, crisis somehow. I desperately hope that we can avoid a war because the signs are not good. Each day we, uh, that passes, we seem to have new warnings. You know, the US telling its citizens to get out within 24 to 48 hours. It sounds uh, ominous, doesn't it? And uh, and scary. Uh, you know, I think even for, for New Zealand, uh, you know, that's a scary prospect. We're an island, literally, but not uh, figuratively, and we're very much interconnected with the world. So uh, I think we desperately need a de-escalation, and there are attempts being made to do this every day at the moment, but they're not really going anywhere. Robert, what, what kind of levers does NATO and the US really have? What sort of leverage? Yeah. Um, 
the Biden administration and the EU and many of the EU leaders have either individually and collectively warned Mr. Putin that it will be catastrophic for Russia if they proceed. Um, so Russia could find itself essentially um, marginalized in terms of the international system. It is a uh, it, it, Russia's income. Russia's got an economy smaller than Italy's, but the money that it makes um, is largely in, in terms of exports, is largely through the export of fossil fuels. And um, that would be put at risk. The Germans have told, the German government um, has, has told, while they are, I think, acting with a lot of restraint, they're, prevent, they're not sending weapons to Ukraine like many other countries in Western Europe. Uh, but they have indicated, I think, um, quite firmly, um, this was quite clear when we saw the German leader uh, with Mr. Biden in Washington, uh, that the Nord Stream uh, pipeline project could be in danger if Russia proceeds. Um, I'm not sure. I think Mr. Putin feels that China has sided with him in this situation, which I think is actually quite a calculation, a risky calculation by the Chinese. China is critically dependent on access to Western markets, not least the United States, the EU, the biggest single market, the most prosperous single market in the world, and Japan. And so China has moved from its 2014 position when it supported the territorial integrity of the Ukraine, despite the annexation of Crimea. China now seems to be siding Mr. Putin. I think they're miscalculating. But authoritarian regimes do have a problem, particularly one, uh, Jeffrey pointed out quite rightly, that Mr. Putin's been in power for 22 years, either as president or prime minister. And the difficulty for Mr. Putin is he's not going to get robust, independent advice. He's living in a bit of a bubble. People who've presented opposing ideas don't tend to survive too long in his inner circle. And, um, you know... It's all very well pointing out the consequences to a leader if they embark upon a particular line of action. It's whether that leader fully intellectually absorbs those consequences and understands them. Um, there is a sign that Mr. I mean, Angela Merkel made this point over many conversations that she had in both Russian and German with Mr. Putin during the 2014 crisis he seemed to be operating, as from her point of view, in an alternative universe. So um, I think Mr. Putin sees the world in zero-sum terms. And um, I, I think I'm pessimistic at the moment, unfortunately, and I think um, he will probably accelerate military pressure. It may not be an outright invasion. It may be a reinvigoration of the insurgency, insurgency that he stimulated in 2014. Um I think the stakes are very high, not least for New Zealand. Uh, we are a small country that depends on the rule of law internationally for us to do our business economically. And it's also very important for middle countries, um, middle powers. So I think that we need to develop a voice on this issue and make mis no mistake about it. If Mr. Putin... Uh, proceeds to further invade Ukraine, 
this will have global reper repercussions. Um, and it's very important, I think, that middle powers and small powers collectively make it quite clear to both China and Russia that they do not accept a spheres of influence carve up of the world in the 21st century. After all, it, it won't work because great powers can't unilaterally solve COVID-19. They can't solve um, climate change. They can't solve many of the problems that face states. So kicking and screaming, we are going to have to move towards collective decisions. But this sort of action does not help it and does not help international cooperation. So, yeah, I, I think there's a lot at stake. I think it's a serious moment. And uh, I'm not particularly um, reassured by Mr. Putin's reassurances um, about he doesn't want invasion. Um, I think he has the Leninist precept that information is a sort of tactical weapon that can be used in such a conflict. Well, friends, we're talking with Robert Patman and Jeffrey Miller about the Russian-Ukraine crisis um, instigated by Russia. And we're talking about how we got there and how we get out of it and deal with uh, Putin, who's still in power. Could you uh, talk about some of the agreements that have gone before the Minsk Two settlement and maybe more importantly, the Helsinki Agreement as how they apply to this crisis and to how we look at the world. Sorry, Jeff. I, well, I would just before going on to that, Marvin, I'd just like to, to comment on the the uh, some of the issues we were talking about just just before. Uh, in particular, the role of sanctions here. I think we need to be very cautious that about the idea of sanctions changing Russia's behavior. Uh, there's a lot of talk about sanctions at the moment, you know, a crippling, severe package of sanctions. Uh, you know, and there's no doubt that these would be very strong sanctions. But I think essentially that those they are being emphasized precisely because the West is not willing to go in with ground troops. There's zero appetite in, in the US for sending in ground troops, having just extricated themselves from uh, you know, brutal wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. That uh, extracted a very high, took a very high toll on on the US and in all kinds of ways. Um, but more to the point, you know, Russia also had sanctions imposed on it uh, after 2014 when it illegally annexed uh, Crimea and uh, helped uh, the separatists take over uh, um, Donetsk and Luhansk, the uh, areas in the Donbass in the east of Ukraine. And uh, in my view, it's, it, you know, it is true that Russia's economy has not grown. Uh, it's been very sluggish growth over that period. Uh, by the same token, the oil price has been depressed uh, for a large part of that, which also helps to explain that. But more to the point, I think it's pushed Russia in the direction of China. Uh, we talked, Robert talked about uh about the change in the Chinese position. And if you look at the meeting between uh, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin at the Winter Olympic Games, uh, they are now best of friends. In fact, Putin calls Xi his best, his best friend and his dear friend. And they're reinforcing each other's positions. Uh, Putin is backing China's 
view over uh, position on Taiwan. And she is backing Putin uh, with regards to the with regards to NATO. So if you go ahead with the sanctions and you kill off North Nord Stream Two, the gas pipeline under the Baltic Sea that uh, has been completed is not yet operational between Russia and Germany. Uh, that's that's fine. You can do that, and that will punish Russia, undoubtedly, because at the moment, you know, most two thirds of its income comes from selling oil and gas, and a large portion of that to Europe. But that will ultimately only, in my view, push Russia more in the direction of Beijing, and it, Russia will sell its oil and gas to China instead. It will have no option because it's, it will have to sell it to someone, and it may have to do it at a lower, at a lower price, and it will take time to reorient uh, from Europe to China. But I think that's what will happen, and that's actually in China's strategic interest as well, because China has a strategic vulnerability, in that it imports you know, around half of its oil from the Middle East and around twenty percent of its natural gas supplies, and they're coming mainly from U.S. allies like Saudi Arabia and Qatar, and Qatar's just been designated a major non-NATO uh, U.S. ally. So you know, it's in China's interest in a sense. So. You know, if you go ahead with this, I think you know, China and Russia are only going to become more uh, intertwined and it might end up being uh, a little bit on the counterproductive side. Uh, perhaps I'll, I'll pass on to, to Robert maybe to talk about those, those other issues on, on the Minsk Agreement and Helsinki Accords uh, first. Well, with regard to the Helsinki um, reference to the 1975 agreement in which um, which was quite controversial at the time because for the first time in the post-1945 period, um, the West, that is the, the countries of Western Europe and also Canada and the United States, agreed to effectively a div the division of Europe um, into spheres of influence, something that Soviet decision-makers had long looked for. Uh, but there was a sting in the tail that to get that agreement, the Brezhnev regime at the time had to agree that human rights extended right across the European uh, continent. And the one of the offshoots of the Helsinki Agreement, um, that all European citizens were entitled to human rights, irrespective of where they lived, was that it began to stimulate the dissident movement within the Eastern Bloc. Václav Havel was a prominent dissident who emerged from what was then called Czechoslovakia. He subsequently became president of an independent Czech Republic in the 1990s and also in, in the Soviet Union itself. Uh, this movement, which featured, amongst others, Andrei Sakharov, um, the father of the atomic bomb, as he was called, uh, became prominent. So, And these people played quite a prominent role in the, um, the emergence of Russia after the implosion, um, not politically, but in terms of ideas. Um, so in a sense, you know, the great historian, um, Anthony Garden Ash has made the point um, that we should be looking, we shouldn't forget about Helsinki and we should not be cavalier to accommodate Russia about the security interests and human rights and the political interests of independent sovereign countries in Central and Eastern Europe. And, 
you know, I agree in this situation, as Jeffrey quite rightly points out, there is the risk of Russia and China coming together. But this is, there's no, you know, somebody once said, Inman Burke once said about political life, it's often a choice between the disagreeable and the intolerable. And I think it would be, quite frankly, intolerable if the rest of the world accommodated or gave in to what I think are outlandish demands by Mr. Putin, that he wants effectively to re-establish the sphere of influence in Eastern Europe. And that's how the Eastern Europeans see it. That's why many of the country uh, citizens, uh, people are volunteering in Poland and many other countries to fight in the event of a Soviet invasion, uh, Russian invasion. So, um, yeah, I, on the so the Minsk Accord um, in 2015 was signed after the uh, Russian invasion, the annexation of the Minsk and also Russian support in the Donbass area in eastern Ukraine for Russian-speaking people in uh, Ukraine. We should explain to the listeners about 30% of the population in Ukraine uh, has uh, very strong Russian links, speak Russian language, uh, and many of them have relatives across the border in Russia. So uh, Russia is, I mean, Ukraine is... Um, does have two distinct populations there, the Ukrainians and the, the Russians. Um, but um, the Minsk Accord was an attempt to, first of all, it did succeed in establishing a precarious truce, which has subsequently been bro- um, broken numerous times. Uh, about 14,000 uh, people have died in the conflict. Uh, and, you know, it may be a bit of a surprise to some people, but the conflict between Russia and Ukraine has been going on for, you know, eight years now. And there's been fighting during that period. So um, the Minsk Accord, was, it was hoped it could be implemented and therefore uh, that the the separatists, the armed separatists in the eastern part of the country would be effectively given autonomy uh, by the Ukrainian government uh, through a negotiation process. Now, that hasn't occurred, and Mr. Putin has expressed his frustration um, that this hasn't occurred, and that there were some hopes, particularly with Mr. Macron's visit, the mince process could be reactivated, and uh, that if the if that agreed, uh, if, if the agreement could be put in place, then Mr. Putin might be reassured um, that the eastern part of the country, at least, would be almost a de facto sphere of influence because it would have substantial autonomy from the central government uh, in the west of the country. So uh, that, that's, I think, uh, you know, a very thumbnail sketch of the, the Minsk Accord. But uh, the, the Ukrainian government sees the Minsk Accord in very different terms to uh, Mr. Putin. And I don't think there's any easy way of reconciling those two visions of uh, that agreement. What, what's a Ukrainian vision view of it? Well, I think uh, their vision is that they don't rule out the possibility of limited autonomy, but the ter- territorial, uh, I think it's the question of degree. Um, and uh, they, they, they basically still feel, I mean, the, the, the Ukrainians, I think, 
simply the West, many Ukrainians um, feel very distrustful of Mr. Putin's motivations. And um, he has said in the past, for example, in 2008, he said to Mr. Bush that Ukraine wasn't a proper country and didn't deserve, you know, by implication with those words, didn't deserve the rights accorded to a sovereign independent country. So, and the, the experience since 2014, um, Russia has been heavily involved in the eastern part of the country. This has been hybrid warfare. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that the Ukraine see uh, the Russian vision, the Ukrainian government sees the Russian vision of the Minsk Accords basically as a de facto uh, a mechanism which Russia could get international blessing for a de facto sphere of influence in eastern Ukraine, whereas I think the West, the West, the Ukrainian government sees a much more limited agreement, whereby um, the they could uh, the, the Donbass and other regions in the eastern part of Ukraine could have some regional autonomy, but would be part of um, a country which retained its territorial integrity ultimately under the control of the central government in Kiev. So, yeah, I think it's it's a difference in terms of degree of autonomy. Now, do you think Macron had any success? Well, I think Mr. Putin um, likes the idea that there's a Western leader, particularly one that's in NATO in the EU, that's giving him, you know, serious attention. Um, I think... Mr. Macron's been careful to say, however, he wouldn't do anything to jeopardise the rights of both the Ukrainian government and other Eastern European countries. So it's a bit of a delicate balancing act. I think Mr. Macron's strategy um, is to, you know, to in a sense try to open a uh, a channel of communication um, and head off war, um, but. Um, it, it seems to me that there's not too much to agree on, really. You know, you can't just have talks for the sake of it. And it's interesting to me, although he's, those two leaders spent six hours together in Moscow, um, not too much concrete has come out of it other than an agreement to keep talking. Then they had another 90-minute conversation uh, the other day. Uh, I don't think you – know, one of the things that really disturbed me as well, I thought that Mr. Putin was simply trying to get the attention of the West initially, and that when he put the 130,000 troops, or it's been rising actually, there was 120,000 troops when Mr. Biden first agreed to meet um, the the two camp, you know, have a summit and meet. I thought at that point Mr. Putin might declare victory. He might say, "Oh, look, now we've got a dialogue with the Americans. We can." start proceeding, but he actually quickly said, unless the rest of the world met his demands, then there would be military technical solutions in the Ukraine. And, you, you know, I, I I think that he's put himself in a position where he cannot back down now, and um, not easily. And uh, it, it seems to me that this is a very dangerous situation. I guess that's why I ask about Macron, because um, Putin doesn't seem like a person that could easily 
lose. But let's be quite clear. But let's be quite clear about this. Mr. Putin is making a claim which is not true. Sure. That that NATO uh, members of Eastern Europe were dragooned into joining it because of the United States. Um, and secondly, he's making a demand that most democracies in the world would have very be loath to accept that a country which is an authoritarian country has the right to dictate the security policies of a neighbour, which in the case of you know Ukraine, it may not be a perfect democracy, but it has elections and certainly wants to develop links with the democratic world. Um, and he's he's re- he's making the demand that, that that can never happen. That this country that he's demanding a veto over the security policies of a neighbour. Yeah. And you know how would we feel in New Zealand, for example, if when we wanted to go non-nuclear in our security policy, Australia or some other bigger power said to us, "No, you can't do that. It's not. That's just not on the, on, 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 you know, on the agenda." So. That's one thing, but he's gone further than that. It's not just Ukraine. He's demanding that the NATO infrastructure in the 14 countries that joined it from Eastern Europe should be effectively be disestablished. He must know that's impossible. Yeah, so why is he making these extraordinary demands? What do you think about spheres of influence? Sorry? Not just spheres of influence were major powers. Uh, say that they can control uh, their neighbours, particularly their neighbours. Well, I think they're totally unacceptable to the majority of countries in the international system. But it happens. I mean, the United States is in a difficult position to say we shouldn't have spheres of influence. Absolutely. But do, does New Zealand agree with America's tacit sphere of influence? No, we don't. And also... Objectively, these countries have no right to demand a, a sphere of influence. They cannot solve the problems on their own. You know, well, they, in a essentially, sense, countries that have spheres of influence make the domestic situation of the countries they're trying to influence worse. Historically. Yeah, but I, I think it's particularly a bad fit in the 21st century because, know. you know, uh, China and Russia. And I think, to some extent, the United States have a compartmentalized view of the world, which is increasingly at odds with the way the world actually is. We are facing a multiplying number of problems which do not respect borders. And in a sense, um, you know, this attempt to establish fear of influence, um, of course, I can see the logic of it for an authoritarian regime. Mr. Putin is extremely nervous about Ukraine becoming a full-blooded rules-based democracy. And he's worried because of the insecurity of being an authoritarian leader that's been in power a long time. Um, this is someone who couldn't allow a credible competitor to compete in the last election, uh, Alexei Navalny. So, you know, I can understand why China's also very nervous about Hong Kong and Taiwan. They're seen as uh, protests there us and the democracy of Taiwan are seen as, you know, um, containing ideas which might have destabilizing consequences to the mainland China. And I think Mr. Putin uh, also views the situation in the Ukraine in terms of the survival of his own regime.
So, but do we say to authoritarian regimes, oh, yes, you can have a sphere of influence because that might avert a war? I'm not sure that's really practical in the 21st century. Jeff, when you talked about, in your opinion piece, about New Zealand's role in diplomacy and in international relations, could you talk about that a bit? Mm. Yes. Yes. Well, I think, you know, just to echo Robert's uh, points on, on, on all of this, we've seen uh, a lot of discussions with, uh, in particular, uh, Emmanuel, Emmanuel Macron, uh, who's gone to Moscow and uh, had a six-hour meeting there uh, last week and had a you know, almost two-hour phone conversation at the weekend. Uh, you know, I, I call to mind Winston Churchill's old maxim of George Orr is better than World War. Uh, I think, you know, as long as, you know, we are still talking, then that's far better than the alternative. Uh, even if nothing concrete immediately is coming out of it, uh, I think it's still far better to have that uh, dialogue going. And it's probably one of the few positive things I would say that's uh, been uh, been happening in this ongoing crisis is that there has been a lot of dialogue. Uh, Biden, I spoke on the phone with uh, Putin uh, at the weekend for an hour. He spoke twice in December with him on the phone. We had the summit in Geneva last June. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of dialogue um, from quite a range of, of leaders uh, in, you know, from, from Europe, from from elsewhere, uh, you know, I think you know, we need to keep. You know, we do need to keep trying. Um, it's absolutely true what Robert said that you know there hasn't been an immediate breakthrough um, with all this negotiations, um, with the, the dialogue at least. Uh, I think Putin is asking for something that, of course, you know, the West cannot possibly give him. Uh, the West is just simply not going to. Uh, Give a guarantee that you know NATO, that Ukraine will never join NATO. Uh, it's not going to roll back and cancel the memberships of the states that have joined NATO since the Cold War either. They're just non-starters. But I, I think it's also true in any negotiation. You put your wish list, and you know, Putin is piling on the pressure, uh, both militarily with that troop build-up and with such a you know, outrageous demand. Really, um, I think it's. Uh, up to us to put alternative proposals to continue to do that. And I do think the Minsk agreement and the, the Normandy format, which uh, has come out of that, that's uh, the format between uh, of negotiations between uh, Russia, France, Germany, Russia and Ukraine is probably the key to solving this conflict. If we are going to solve it diplomatically, it's going to come through that Minsk agreement process. The Minsk Agreement hasn't been fully implemented at all, um, and there are good reasons for that. You know, the sequencing is not uh, spelled out in the Minsk Agreement, and there are breaches on both sides. Uh, you know, the, Ukraine's argument is that they don't control the border between Ukraine and Russia, and there shouldn't be elections until then. Ukraine won't talk with the rebels, and the, they don't want to be um, pushed into giving uh, you know, Donetsk and the Hansk special status uh, special autonom uh, autonomous status, uh, just because Russia's uh, got them over a barrel, effectively. But you know, for all that, it probably is the the key to solving it, and that would provide some kind of off ramp for um, for for Russia to back down, because there is this problem: how do you wind this back? You know, Russia after spending weeks, months with this troop build up, the idea of 
Putin just going home saying, oh, no, I'm not going to invade after all. For a leader like he is, uh, the authoritarian strongman he is, that's just a non-starter as well. So you, you have to provide some kind of off-ramp. And I, you know, you know, immediately the word appeasement was always used at this point and the comparisons with Munich and Chamberlain and, and all of that. I, I don't agree. I think that, you know, negotiation is not the same as a, appeasement. Um, that is diplomacy. And, uh, you know, you're going to have to come up with something or the alternative is, do you want a, a war in Europe? Well, no one wants that. Um, so in reference to your your question about, you know, what can New Zealand do and some of the points I was making in my uh, piece a couple of weeks ago, uh, I think uh, New Zealand as a small state uh, can be a pivot in these kind of great power con conflicts, a, a sort of a mediator, uh, and go between whatever the, the the scripter may be. Uh, you know, New Zealand is not a member of NATO. Uh, France and Germany, they've got the problem that they are members. So when they negotiate, yes, they um, you know, have the authority in a sense as NATO members, but they're right involved. New Zealand, uh, you know, obviously there's a long, long way away from the situation, is not a member of NATO, is actually on pretty good terms with uh, the likes of China in particular. I think New Zealand's probably... China's best friend in the West, uh, you know, and as we've talked about earlier, uh, China and Russia are increasingly close friends and allies. So, you know, this New Zealand has got some credibility there. It doesn't directly have skin in the in the game, uh, and you know, could uh, I think? I mean, I think in this particular situation, it's, it's very unlikely that New Zealand can probably do much at this point. But you know, uh, there will be future such conflicts, the way the world is going, I, I've no doubt that this crisis over Ukraine uh, will not be the last, uh, unfortunately. You know, we are seeing this uh, growing new Cold War, if you like, between uh, between Russia, China and the West. Um, and I think there's a need for countries like New Zealand to, uh, to step up and to you know, work with diplomatic channels. It's not something New Zealand has a great amount of experience in. Uh, I wrote in the piece about uh, ideas put forward by Ruben Steff, who's an academic at uh, the University of Waikato, and uh, he's proposed uh, uh, New Zealand set up a centre of great power competition. And uh, he was writing really about uh, China and these conflicts that we talked a lot about last year between uh, China and the West. Uh, and talked about, you know, the idea of New Zealand hosting a summit between the US and China on the Waitangi Trust Treaty Grounds, for example, uh, or on a Royal New Zealand Navy frigate at sea. Uh, I think it's worth exploring these kinds of ideas. New Zealand doesn't have probably the capabilities to do this kind of thing right now. Um, it's got a foreign ministry that's very focused on trade policy. But if you never build the capabilities, no, you'll never get there. I mean, diplomacy is a relatively... Uh, cheap thing to do um, you know it requires staff and it requires training but it's a lot cheaper than uh, than, than you know military investment uh, I think it's worth exploring these these kinds of uh, options um, so you know the, the Ruben Steff is not the only one who's suggested these these kinds of things uh, I, I mentioned a couple of others who've come up with similar proposals in my in my piece and uh, you know, I, I think they're absolutely worth exploring, but it would require, you know, New Zealand would need to build up um, some skills uh, in this area and re would require New Zealand to build up some skills also in 
uh, in terms of uh, expertise in Russia. New Zealand has got a growing number of diplomats who have got experience with uh, who are Chinese speakers, who have got experience with China. But there's a real paucity now post Cold, Cold War Cold War of experts on Russia. Um, you know, you'd need to build build that up. We've got a a new Russian a new New Zealand ambassador to Russia. Uh, now who doesn't have any real background in 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 Russia? She's not a Russian speaker. Um, you know, we'd need to change that. We'd need to develop some of these skills. If Russia is going to increasingly become a a player and uh, work along increasingly work alongside uh, works uh, work alongside China, would you basically run? Would you think that's a good direction to go? Um, I think I'm slightly less pessimist, uh, less optimistic. Um, than Jeffrey on this issue. But I do agree um, that I think New Zealand sometimes rules itself out of situations, whereas I think New Zealand's international political capital has steadily risen in recent years. And we live in an, an increasingly interconnected world, a world that's going to become even more interconnected, which, of course, is a source of grave, grave discomfort for authoritarian regimes, it's not so much the ideas of democracy are destabilizing their population, it's that they technologically are finding it increasingly difficult to insulate their population. Mr. Putin is facing a situation where many young Russians are no longer getting their news from the state-directed media, um, and that may be making the regime extremely uneasy. And China also of course, has been, um, to some extent, trying to create firewalls around the internet for some time and just present Chinese citizens with uh, limited access. So, you know, I think given this context and given the fact that New Zealand has, I think, some soft power, we should be looking to play a more prominent role. Um, in the case of the crisis we're talking about, I just feel um, that there, it's not always possible just to split the differences or come up with a compromise. I've heard, and I've personally been disappointed by it, a number of eminent scholars around the world, um, Anatole Levin and John Mearsheimer, saying, well, the solution to the problem is simply to make buffer, uh, Ukraine a Russian buffer state. Um, I, I think that uh, that would have consequences for many democracies in Eastern Europe and elsewhere. I don't think New Zealand should be uh, trying to participate any diplomacy that results in that situation. I've noticed that when we've had differences with China, we've never taken steps. I don't think the New Zealand population would stand for it. In, we, in which we accepted a master-servant relationship with China. I don't think we should expect Ukraine to accept a master-servant relationship with Russia. And Mr. Putin has to learn that he, you know, by making an outrageous demand, he doesn't get handed a half a loaf. He's created this crisis. He's going to have to deal with it. And by the way, many analysts are talking, and I do think this could happen, that a Russian invasion will happen quite quickly and militarily Ukraine will be quickly overwhelmed. On paper, that could happen. 
But we've seen lots of other conflicts in the world where a much bigger power, such as the United States and Iraq, such as the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, on paper, should have quickly prevailed. But the reality with war is often different. And remember, if Russia invades, fully, fully invades Ukraine, it's already invaded part of it, if it fully invades the whole of Ukraine, it won't just be dealing with the resistance within that country. There'll be many Eastern European countries, some of which are members of NATO, which will be helping Ukraine on a bilateral basis because many of those countries believe the issue is not just about Ukraine, but as with an attempt by an authoritarian regime to recreate a sphere of influence in its neighbourhood. I can see why China is supporting Mr. Putin, but that's no reason, you know. So, yes, we should, I think, play a diplomatic role. Should we be trying to split the differences between Ukraine and Russia? No. What we should be doing, I believe, is acting as a catalyst, a playmaker in diplomatic terms, to bring small powers and middle powers together and say, quite clearly, we do not accept the spheres of influence approach to international politics, and that the middle powers and the small powers have a much greater role to play in global politics in the 21st century. You know, it, it, often, and this point is often overlooked by so many people, but in the post-Cold War world, it's very difficult to point to any successful unilateral action by a superpower or a regional power. You can point to the US invasion of, of a unilateral invasion of Iraq, well, largely unilateral, it bypassed the UN Security Council. That was a disaster for the United States and set them back decades in terms of their uh, leadership reputation. Um, Russia invaded Crimea. And as Jeffrey indicated, it certainly had painful economic consequences. And um, the extraordinary thing is, despite the economic pain that Russia suffered, uh, capital flight of more than $170 billion within 11 months of the invasion, annexation of Crimea, and also the Russian economy didn't grow for two years. It returned to growth in late 2016. Um, despite those consequences, there seems to be a, a desire to do it again. Well, thanks a lot, Robert and Jeffrey, for your uh, background and giving us an awareness of what's going on and what's at stake. Thank you very much for coming on. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. And um, Thank you, Marvin. We've got a lot of work to do. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.